0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us.
1: Sometimes when I'm engaged in a conversation with someone, I'll ask them a question. And I don't mean a loaded question, the kind of question where you're expecting some specific kind of answer of some kind, but a real legitimate question. Because it's how people answer questions, it's the answers that they give and how they give them, that will often tell you a lot about who they are as a person, what they value. It's an opportunity to really get to know an individual. One of the questions that I will ask people is, what does it mean to be a Christian? How would you define the Christian life? What would be an objective or a goal of the Christian life? that would tell me what you think about what it means to be a Christian. I will often ask this kind of a question because I really want to know what people think about this, especially if they're in a leadership position in a Christian church of some kind, then they should have a distinct opinion about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live the Christian life. There should be a definitive answer from someone who esteems to be a leader of some kind of Christians. They should be able to give a definitive description of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to live the Christian life? How would you know if you were succeeding or how would you know if you were failing? How would you know if you were achieving the objectives, if you don't really have a clear definition, of what these objectives are? Well, there are, of course, various answers to, to this kind of a question, and each answer can certainly present many opportunities for further discussion, but one of the common answers that I will receive when asking this kind of a question of people who esteem to be Christians is that the goal of the Christian life, the objective of the Christian life, is to get your flesh under control. That means that we are to live our lives trying to get all of the sin out of our lives, that this is the goal of the Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian for many people. Now, you certainly may not share in that belief or in that opinion, but you probably are surrounded by many others who do take that position. Or at least they believe that there are other people, there There are Christians, who do take that kind of a position. And so this is a very important question, and the answer that I just gave is, of course, very significant because of its popularity. For this reason and many others, I believe that we should take some time to address this issue. We should really ask about this question, this answer, and the legitimacy of the answer that is given. Is the objective of the Christian life truly to stop sinning? Now, if we assume that this is the objective, I'll take a moment and assume that this is the answer to the Christian life of what it means and how we would be able to measure the success or failure of an individual in pursuing their Christian life. If this is the case, then how are we doing with that? I mean, seriously, should we not evaluate ourselves and others who are around us and come to a conclusion as to whether or not this objective is being met, if we are truly fulfilling the objective, if we are meeting this goal, are we achieving success? And if we are not achieving success, well, then we should consider why. We should be making some changes. We should be making some modifications of some kind. We should be finding some way of pursuing a solution to this. Because if we fail, if we fail to achieve the goal of the Christian life, or a very important goal of the Christian life, then I think we should be concerned, and we should take action of some kind in order to make corrections. Now, of course, there are only two possibilities when it comes to making corrections. Either we make a correction to our approach, to the methodologies that we employ in order to try to achieve success, or we change our goal and say that that no longer is going to be One of our objectives or one of our goals. Now, in saying that, I want you to know that I personally believe that if a person is a Christian, if they are a born-again believer, if they are a child of God, I would expect to see a reduction of sin in their lives. And if there is no reduction of sin in their lives after a reasonable period of time of them being in the faith, I would be concerned to a certain extent. I would wonder... If this person really is pursuing a relationship with the Lord or not. Now, what I mean by that is that I would expect to see a reduction of sin. But this doesn't mean that I personally would conclude that this is one of the objectives of the Christian life. And I want to make that distinction right away. There are many people who will say that this is an objective of the Christian life. I personally do not share in that position. However, I also do believe that we should expect to see a reduction of sin in a person's life. The difference that I personally express whenever I have conversations about this subject, my difference when it comes to these things is to say that I believe it is a side effect of the Christian life. It is a side effect of other goals, of other objectives, but it in and of itself to me is not an objective. So before I continue to talk about this subject, I wanted to tell you up front that this is my position concerning this subject, that I do believe that we should expect to see a reduction of sin. However, it is not the primary goal. But for those who do believe that it is a primary goal, I would like to take a moment to talk about that with a little bit more detail. If it is an objective, then how are we doing? How are we really doing? Are we really achieving this objective? And I would have to say, by just simply looking around, by having conversations with people, by engaging with different people who esteem to be Christians, who hold to this belief, I think that the evidence shows that people are not doing very well when it comes to this goal, when it comes to this objective, that there is a significant amount of failure that is taking place. And so if there is going to be some success of some kind, then what people are doing or what they are believing is going to have to be different. There will have to be a difference of some kind somewhere. This should be addressed because if it is not addressed, if people do not have conversations about this issue and if people do not take this issue seriously enough to evaluate the conditions and the circumstances and the beliefs that people hold to then we are going to continue to have a tremendous amount of confusion and of dysfunction in what we officially recognized as Christianity, the Christian world, the church at large. We're going to continue to have a tremendous amount of dysfunction around us, within us, amongst us, which I believe is present enough to be self-evident that this is a concern, that people are not reducing the amount of sin in their life to the extent that I believe we could say that it is satisfactory, that there has been an achievement concerning this with those who esteem to be people of faith. So, if we were to consider what I just described, then how should we make these changes? What should we do? How will a person stop sinning, what will a person need to do in order to get control over their flesh? And what should we do as Christian leaders, what should we do in order to assist or to be a part of the freedom that people are expected to experience when they manage to overcome the sin in their lives? This is the question. If it's not working, then what should we do? Well, I personally think that a lot of thought has been put into this already, and that people are taking action, that they are trying, people are doing things. And I personally believe that they're doing everything that they can possibly conceive of and think of in order to achieve success. And so let's take some time to examine and explore some of these things that people are already doing. And after examining that, perhaps we could have some further discussion about what else we might be able to accomplish something else besides redoubling our efforts, perhaps. But let's start with the things that people are already trying to do in order to get people to stop sinning, to get the sin out of their lives that does not seem to be working very well. Well, the first tactic or the first approach that I would like to talk about concerning people's attempts to get people to stop sinning is to use fear to threaten people to threaten them with punishment, with divine punishment if necessary, but to find some way to use fear in order to scare a person into stopping their sin. We'll say things like, if you sin, then we are going to engage you, engage your friends, engage your employer, we'll engage whoever we need to engage. We will intervene in some way so that we will terrify you, we will scare you, We will be as mean to you as we possibly can be in order to get you to stop it. This is an approach that people will take. However, they don't take this one very often because it does sound a little cruel and does sound a little mean and perhaps a little judgmental. And so not very many people will go that far. They normally will say things like, we will be concerned about you because there could be some divine judgment. God will follow you around and he will find some way to intervene in your life to cause great destruction, great calamity, some serious pain, some serious suffering. And so you had better be terrified of God's divine intervention in your life. Because if you're not, you're going to probably experience it because of this sin. So stop the sin because God will probably cause this terrible destruction in your life. People will try this. They will try to use fear in some way. But how does this work out? I mean, does this really work? Is this really going to get someone to stop sinning? Well, you might. You might be able to get somebody's behavior to change a little bit, just because they don't want to experience such great tribulation, they don't want to experience such significant punishment, and so perhaps they might get their flesh under control to an extent, but what about their heart? What about their desires? Are you really making a change within them to the extent where they no longer want to sin, or do they just simply want to avoid punishment? That doesn't sound like success to me. I mean, you can certainly threaten a person enough in order to get their flesh under control to a certain extent. You can threaten people. But is that really going to change someone's heart? In general, I don't believe that it will really change their heart to the extent where they would not commit that sin simply because they don't want to commit that sin. Instead, what you're dealing with is someone who really wants to commit that sin, but the only reason why they're not doing it is because they're terrified, because they're afraid. Now, there is a lot in the scriptures that suggests that this could very well be the way that we should live. There's a lot in the scriptures that could suggest that. Look into the law. If you go into the Old Testament and look at the law, look at the writings and the prophets and see the history that's there. The Lord has promoted this on many occasions where he has said, stop the sin or I am going to beat you. I'm going to enslave you. I'm going to evict you from the land. I'm going to cause all of this terrible destruction in your life. And so we could look at that and we could say that this must be the way that he relates to us. But if that's the case, if that's the approach that you would like to take, I would like you to consider the fact that it didn't work. It simply did not work generation after generation. We have numerous examples that are recorded in the scriptures that show that certainly there are some occasions when this does have a positive effect. But for the most part, this does not change people's lives. People's hearts are not changed by this threat of punishment, the invocation of fear. People's lives are not changed by this. We have hundreds of years of history that are described in the scriptures that show that this is the case, and so why would you be so surprised if this approach does not work today? People still utilize it today. There are many people who take this approach, and it's not really working, and I know that people will come up with all kinds of explanations besides the fact that this approach does not work. People come up with all kinds of explanations to try to keep this approach alive, to try to keep this methodology alive, part of their doctrine, part of their faith, part of the way that they live their Christian lives, not realizing that there might be something wrong with what they believe, not necessarily something wrong with the individual who they tried to get under control. When it comes to fear, the usage of fear... The New Covenant does have something to say about the usage of fear. Consider 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. This is 1 John chapter 4. In verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then he goes on from there. But at this moment, I would just like to focus on the beginning of verse 18, where it says that there is no fear in love and that love casts out fear. If we have a God who loves us and we have a relationship with him that's based on the love that he has for us, then what are we doing with fear? How can you have both? Do you need some fear and so that his love will cast it out? Or in this case, I would suggest that what you see happening when people are trying to use fear in order to get others to stop sinning, to get somebody's flesh under control, what they are really doing is they are pushing out the love of God. They are taking away the love of God from this individual by using fear as a doctrine, by using fear as an approach in order to try and achieve this goal, not understanding that it really is the love of God that will achieve this objective. Now, I do not believe that this is the primary objective. I believe that it is a side effect of the love that a person rests in, of the grace that a person receives and trusts in, that the reduction of sin in their life will be a result of that, a result of the love of God in their life that will fulfill their heart and meet the deepest needs that they truly have, that are being used against them with these temptations to engage in sin. But instead of that, people are pounding this subject of fear. They are beating people with fear, trying to get people to get their flesh under control by using fear. But the end result of that is that they have to believe that God does not love them. They have to push that love out of people's lives. And I believe that this leads to a tremendous amount of confusion, a tremendous amount of confusion. How can you hear a sermon from someone who you obviously pay to tell you these things how can you hear a sermon from someone who tells you in the first if it's a 30 minute sermon in the first 15 minutes how much god loves you and then in the other 15 minutes how much you should be afraid of god how are you going to hybridize the two especially when you consider a verse like first john chapter 4 verse 18 how can you re- you cannot reconcile the two and that's the point is that there is a tremendous amount of confusion just because of something as simple as this Fear will not get a person to stop sinning. If you don't believe me, then perhaps you need to try it a little bit more often, and you need to evaluate the results that you think you're supposed to achieve or obtain. We were not made by our God to function in this way, as sincere as you might be about trying to get the sin out of your life or somebody else's as devoted as you might be and as determined as you might be, that you would use a tactic such as this. We simply were not made or created by our God to function in this way. We were not created by our God to engage in sin, that's true. But we also were not created by our God to stop sinning or feel motivated to cease the sin in our life because we're terrified of him. He didn't make us for that either. And again, my point in saying this is that if you don't believe me, then you need to be a little bit more involved in people's lives in order to realize that this simply is not real, that this is not being achieved in this way. This is a failure. It is a failure. So what do people do instead? Well, they will often try different tactics. Things like, well, let's use shame and guilt. If we can't use fear, then let's try Making someone feel extremely ashamed will drive them into shame, will make them feel incredibly guilty. They don't have to be terrified, they just have to feel really bad. Well, there are many examples where people have tried to use this tactic, this approach, and it's failed, just as fear has failed. Shame and guilt are used quite often. People will try things like accountability groups, for example where we're going to find a bunch of people who struggle with the same sin. We'll get you all together, and then you can all talk to each other and make each other feel terribly ashamed and guilty, and so that maybe you'll stop it. And you know, if it doesn't work out, then we're going to bring you in front of the entire congregation, because that certainly doesn't seem to be working out very well. And so we're going to bring you before the entire church, and we'll expose your sin there, and we'll show everybody that this is who you are, that this is what you're about. And so maybe... Maybe that will inspire you to stop it. Well, you try it, all right? You try it, or you do an investigation and find out what happens to people when that is done to them. What happens to those people? How do they view what has occurred? Even though they might be a willing participant in it, how does it end? Where does it go? It doesn't work, folks. It just doesn't happen that way. People will eventually just simply leave. They will leave the church, and they will leave it with bad feelings. They will, because that does not change a person's heart. It doesn't change the temptations that they struggle with. It doesn't change anything about the issue, except that this person is going to feel even more hopeless than how they felt before in their sincerity in wanting to get this sin out of their lives. It doesn't end well. And if you don't believe me, then you need to get out a little bit more often, or maybe you should really try it, really try it, and then ask this person later, how did that work out? And when you're done with having this conversation with them about how this worked out, then consider something like Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed to call them brethren because of what he has done for them, because of the sanctification that he has provided through their identification with being children of God, because of what he did through forgiveness, because of what he did through reconciliation, because of what he did through salvation. He is not ashamed to call people brethren, to call people their children. So why is it that if we have a passage such as this, that people continue to try to use shame and guilt? Why do people do that? It could be because they're not aware of this, or they are ignoring this, or they don't care about this, or because they're so determined to be right, they are so determined to believe that they can get someone's flesh under control through shame and guilt, that they feel compelled to do this, that they just have to do this, because they don't... Perhaps know what else to do. They do not know how the Lord will make a change in someone's heart. They only consider what it takes in order to change someone's behavior or change someone's flesh. But there is much more to the Christian life than just trying to get somebody's flesh under control. There is something more. There is a lot more. I do not believe that the goal of the Christian life truly is to get a person's flesh under control. I do believe that this can be a partial side effect of a person's Christian life, but to me, the goal is different. To me, the goal of the Christian life is that a person needs to know the love of God. When you consider that perfect love casts out fear, then perhaps this is an objective of the Lord, that he would like to see fear cast out with his love. Maybe he would like to see that. When you consider Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, about him not being ashamed, maybe that's something that he wants us to know. Maybe that's something that he wants us to believe, that he is not ashamed of us, that we can live our lives with confidence, with peace, knowing that our God is not ashamed of us, and that this would be in his interest, that he really wants to see this happen. If this is the case then if he does have an interest in seeing sin reduced in our lives, it's going to have to be accomplished in a different way, in a way that is different from using what I refer to as the stick. To use this stick in order to beat people with fear and shame and guilt, these ways that people are using are simply ineffective. What else can a person do? What would be an alternative? Well, what people will do as an alternative is to use what I could describe as the carrot. If you're not going to use the stick, try the carrot. You know, the carrot or the stick, the stick or the carrot, the beatings or the blessings. Maybe we can use blessings. If a person is not very responsive to pain, punishment, the fear of God, guilt, shame, if they're not very responsive to these things... Then maybe they'll be responsive to the offer of blessings, the offer of rewards. If we can offer them some positive things, maybe they'll react to that. If we can just offer them enough good, wonderful things, then maybe, maybe they'll stop the sin. Maybe they'll quit sinning if we can just offer them enough positive incentive. If the negative incentive is not working, maybe we should try some positive incentives. In the next program, I'm going to talk about these positive incentives, the carrot, the sincere attempt by many people to either get others to stop sinning, or they will apply this to themselves to try to encourage themselves to stop sinning. But where is this really going to go? Is this really going to work? Let me ask you this question. Please consider this question. Is this really how God wants us to relate to him? Is this really what he wants to hear from us? He wants to hear that we will stop sinning. We will go to God and we will speak to him as our friend and we will say, Lord, I am so thankful that you offer to beat me enough that I felt so terrified that I decided to stop sin. Or are we going to say to him, I'm so thankful that you offer me enough wonderful blessings, enough good things, enough positive incentives that that would be the reason why I would say no to sin. I really don't think that that is what he has in mind. And I will explain this in the program after the next one. The next one I will speak about, The Carrot.
0: You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free... LivingGodMinistries.net. That is LivingGodMinistries.net.